Hi guys and welcome back to episode 10 of the In The Hub podcast with me, Neil Facker. Today we'll be speaking to Mr MXF himself, Bruce Devlin. Bruce is the Standards Vice President at the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, or SMPTE, and holds a phenomenal career working with the likes of the BBC, Snell and Wilcox, and Amber Finn. We really hope that you enjoy this episode. Don't forget that we're still releasing episodes every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. So welcome to the podcast, Bruce. How are you today? I am very fine this morning. Thank you very much. The sun is out, the birds are chirping, and the rain has stopped. Good stuff. So we'll get straight into the questions then, if that's all right with you then, Bruce. Yeah, sure. So, Bruce, how did you get started within the broadcasting industry? Well, it was, um, I think Noah had just finished building his ark, and I just graduated. And there was a choice between, um, for engineers uh, going to design weapon systems, or in this crafts fair, I saw this weird stand from the BBC. I didn't even know the BBC did engineering. Um, so I chatted to the guys from the BBC, and the next thing I know, I'm at BBC Research and Development Department designing radio camera systems. So it was total absolute fluke. But thank goodness I didn't end up designing missiles, because not only is that a bad business, it was a business that wasn't going anywhere in the 1980s. And was the broadcasting technology industry something that you always wanted to get stuck into, or did you kind of fall into it? Um, it was something I fell into. Um and it was interesting because once I got into it, I suddenly realized there was this broad scope of really just wonderful stuff. Um, I remember as a small kid, I grew up in Australia. Um, my, my dad gave me a camera, uh, a sort of a film camera, really old film camera. It's like a 1930s film camera back in the days when they, they had these big manual rolls that you had to roll between two spools and get them in. And that kind of engineering, the engineering in this kind of stuck right from the early days of my life then all of a sudden I go to the BBC in the 1980s and they're still using things like that it was like holy moly how can something as prestigious as the BBC get by on string and sealing wax and I thought this was interesting and um while I was at university I discovered I was okay at things like software and digitization uh, so, of course, the first thing I got stuck into was radio frequency and radio cameras, something that I failed all my exams at. Yet somehow, um, I accidentally ended up being a world expert in designing radio camera antennas. So uh, I like to think that the word career describes both how I got to where I am today and what a car does shortly before it hits a bridge at high speeds. And how did you become Mr. MXF? Do you think that the format has achieved the goals that you initially set out for it? Yeah, good good question. Um, just like my career, it was a bit of an accident, really. When I left the BBC, I went off to go and live in France. And um, I was working at a place called Le Laboratoire Electronique de Rennes. I, I showed up thinking I could speak French, discovered very rapidly that I couldn't, um, and ended up running a chip design team and learning French so I could communicate with the natives at the same time. So it was an interesting and challenging time. And uh, when I came back uh, from France, I started working for Snell and Wilcox. And I was stuck in a pub uh, with Roderick Snell, and he was explaining that one of his buddies at France Television had this little bit of a problem where they had two playout servers. And remember, this is the kind of mid-90s, mid to late 90s. Um, and there were MPEG-2-based playout servers. They both had the same Lucent cards in them uh, that did the actual MPEG-iness. But they were from different manufacturers. And for some reason, they couldn't get the MPEG files from player uh, from server one to server two. And 
I spoke French. I could communicate with French people in French and techno French. So Roderick obviously assumed just like me, it was an engineering problem. And so I got chatting to them. And because I was young and naive and a bit of an idiot, um, I tried to solve this engineering problem that I had been given. So I set up this European research project with a group from Portugal and a group from France and a broadcaster and the BBC and others. And it was called GeForce, Generic Format for Storage. Because I reckoned it wasn't the MPEG that was the problem, because obviously it was the same MPEG coming from both of these cards. It must have been the wrapper. And there was also a bit of a metadata issue. Um, with hindsight, I realized I wasn't asking the right questions. But to cut a really long story short, the GeForce project spawned a company eventually called Mog Solutions, which generated the world's first MXF SDK product. Uh, 10 seconds after they did that, a company called um, OpenCube spawned the world's second MXF SDK. Uh, both of those spawned out of the GeForce project. Uh, FreeMXF.org spawned the open source MXF SDK. That came out of the GeForce project. Um, and I hope that I went on to go and chair all the committees and end up, ended up chairing MXF. And so between 1997, when this question was asked in the pub, and 2004, when 377 was published by Simpty, we felt that we tackled all of the engineering problems of MXF. And about a year later, when I really got into the business of how servers really work and the actual business problem that's trying to be sorted, it was only then that I figured out that the reason why you couldn't move a file from server A to server B was there was no business reason for it to happen because server A was the long form playout server for programs and server B was the short form advert server, which is at the time a complete demarcation of um, the businesses so that the different control systems, which are actually the biggest problem of the day, could be completely different for the promos and the long form. So by not asking the right question at the right time, we accidentally ended up with MXF, um, which is not a bad outcome. Um, but it's, it's interesting that one of the things personally that came out of that was now starting to ask a lot of really hard questions at the beginning of every project I get involved in to try and make certain that we're solving the real problem and not creating some very, very useful, huge, common monster, which actually, if I'd asked the right questions, we probably wouldn't have ended up with MXF because there would have been no drive to fix this engineering project uh, problem. That was an interesting journey. And it all started in the pub, Bruce. <laughs> and I think if I remember the pubs along the way, I think every month there was probably a little dot on that, <laughs> on that breadcrumb trail <laughs> in a pub somewhere. And for the people who maybe don't know as much about the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers, or SIMPTI, could you give us a brief explanation of the Society and their role within our industry? And what are your responsibilities within SIMPTI? Sure. Well, I'm currently the SIMPTI Standards Vice President. Now, SIMPTI itself uh, celebrated um, its 100th birthday a little while back, so we've been around for a very long time. And the Society was originally put together to standardize film formats because the American military was making training movies about how all their stuff worked. But they figured out if one camera hand cranked at 16 RPM on 35 millimeter film um, was then sent to the other side of the country that was machine cranked at 26 RPM on, you know, I don't know, two inch film, there was a certain incompatibility. So they started off with trying to solve that problem and pretty much Simpty's been involved in every single one of those broadcasty and cinema 
kind of issues ever since. Whether it's trying to get the tape formats of the 70s and 80s standardized, whether it's getting the colorimetry formats for high dynamic range standardized, or trying to figure out how do you deliver one immersive audio bitstream so that Dolby Atmos, DTSX, and MPEG H can all coexist in the same box and you decode the right bitstream to the right decoder at the right time. Those kinds of um, how do you build a platform upon which agile business can do its funky thing? That's really what Simpty is there for. And to do that, Simpty has effectively three different things that we focus on. One is membership, because without a large membership base, we don't know what problems we're trying to solve. The other is education, uh, because you know if you really want to go and find out how IMF works or how do you build an HDR pipeline that works for TV and cinema, or how do you make certain that the ATSC3 uh, pipe that you're trying to fulfill in your new ATSC broadcast actually can fit in with the content coming out of the production studios, where do you go to learn that stuff? Certainly... In recent times, most of the professors at most of the universities uh, retired from the industry and set up those courses long before those standards were finished. So you can't learn it in school because there's nobody in school who knows this stuff. Uh, you could go to a single manufacturer and trust that they're giving you completely unbiased information that is um, completely open, or you might believe they're trying to sell you a product. Um, and I'm not trying to be biased here, but you know, some manufacturers are more to one end of the spectrum and some are more to the other end of the spectrum. So the education part of trying to help people navigate this increasingly rapidly changing techno landscape that we find ourselves plonked in. Uh, I use the word plonk in every sense of the word there. It's, it's really a, a key thing for Simpty. And then there's a the standards bit. Um, and to some extent, standards are reactionary in that people come along and say, hey, I've got this idea of how we take ARRI raw and put it in MXF. Can we write it down and make it a standard? So there's that element of the standards thing. Um, and honestly, without that, formats like MXF would never exist. But there's also the other side of um, uh, standards where we set up things like study groups. So we currently have an artificial intelligence and machine learning study group that we set up in conjunction with the Entertainment Technology Center in Hollywood. And the goal there is to try and figure out what elements of machine learning and artificial intelligence are needed to create stable platforms upon which innovative workflows, pipelines, and products can be built. And some people respond to me, well, particularly those who work for the big um, cloud platforms that say, hey, we don't need standards. Just come to us. Buy it from us. It all just works. But if anybody's tried to take um, you know, a training model that they've um, built in TensorFlow and then tried to export it um, into Amazon, that they'll know that it's not all plain sailing and lovely. And that even just running the independent face recognition software on each of the three or four different platforms you can do it on, trying to get a common output that you can interchangeably use, those things aren't easy. So even just at the low-level mechanical um, plug and play uh, area of these machine learning things that exist today, you really have to choose one of the silos. And we haven't even touched on the ethics of some of this stuff yet. So we currently have a questionnaire going out. And if anybody's interested in our questionnaire about you know what things should be stable uh, so that we can do um, agile development on, on top of it, uh, please get in touch with me. You can find me on the Simpty website, simpty.org. 
or you can add to my incredibly small inbox at svp at simpty.org. Um, and we'll send you a copy of the questionnaire because really this is all about trying to build something for the industry so that we allow the, you know, the AI giants to innovate and do their thing. Um, but at the same time, try and build some interoperability so that you're not locked into any one particular platform. And if you want to build a multi-cloud thing, well, hopefully Simpty is going to help you do that. And do you think that we still need standards now that there are so many kind of useful open source initiatives out there? That's a that's a really good question. And it's actually one of the things that I'm trying to answer at the uh, Simpty 2020 virtual show, which is just coming up. Um, in that presentation, I talk a little bit about the stability of standards. So if you think about the deep history of, of media and getting that out to uh, the general public, and we started about 400 AD, and I'm going to be specifically European here. Back in about 400 AD, um, multimedia broadcasting was pretty much monks drawing wonderful books by hand, and you were limited by the number of monks you could get into a room and feed them uh, with nourishing brain food so that they could produce the books as quickly enough. Then in about the 1400s, a thousand years later, we invented the press. Well, actually, I think we stole it from Asia, but um, according to the Europeans, uh, either in Germany or Britain, uh, a press got invented and then we could publish stuff much faster. And that lasted about 400 years until we got photography and we could find chemical ways of reproducing stuff. And that lasted about 100 years until some Italian guy discovered he could speak to America via the radio waves. And that got stuff out much, much faster. Then about 20 years, 30 years later, we could then do TV. And then about 20 years later, we could do color TV. And then about 10 years later, we could do digital TV. And then five years later, we could do it. So there's this exponentially contracting window until we arrive today in 2020. Um, let me check my watch. It is still 2020. The world hasn't ended. We can pretty much do anything you can think of, providing you've got enough compute money and um, resources to throw at it. You know, if, if today you suddenly invented a, you know, a duck synthesis algorithm that was made a more realistic duck than anybody else, nobody would doubt you could do it. You just had to put enough AI and machine learning on duck pictures until you got something that was the perfect hybrid between a mullard and a Donald Trump figurine or whatever it is that your perfect duck looks like. So do we really need standards? With that argument, you'd think no. But actually, as I just said, because you can invent so fast, if total chaos just you know, is, is left to run to its own ends, then actually we'll end up with a hundred different control systems for the thousand different playout systems that we're going to have. Each OTT system is going to be different. And actually you end up that the return on your engineering investment is going down and down and down because you have to invent every step of the way, even if you're just plugging together standard open source bits. So that ultimate route of ultimate choice doesn't sound very good. And if you look at it the other way and you look at open source projects, you build a lot of um, products yourself, and I'm sure you've got some open source in there. Yeah. And everyone's come across the case where a big open source project suddenly has a philosophical problem at the heart of its governance. And actually, if you look at open source projects, a lot of them have to go and pick and choose their governance strategy to make certain that they become big enough and stable enough to employ enough people so that they have continuity of ideas within that open source. And when it does go wrong and the governance breaks down, often you have a big fork and then you're left to decide, you know, if we go back in time, Netscape or Mozilla, for example. Um, 
OpenSSL brand new project spun off to patch Heartbleed or stick with the original OpenSSL and hope that Heartbleed gets fixed and there's not one other zero day that leaves the world open to all of your secrets suddenly being published on the internet. And in a way, the standards organizations are there to handle these fork problems in that our due process methodologies are there to allow us to get people who have fundamental philosophic and financial difference of interests, get them in the same room and try to come to a compromise without people killing each other, such that countries and huge organizations, you know, be they healthcare systems or broadcasting systems can actually say, yeah, let's go MXF. It may not be as smart and funky as this new project that appeared on open source, but you know, it's there to exist and it's there to survive. And big, big, big multi-billion multi-billion dollar organizations have compromised on it. Therefore, there's got to be something about it that you think might have the legs. And because it doesn't define everything, you can then build ad agile solutions to problems on top of this big sort of platform. So I personally believe that there is a wonderful future for standards. Not everything needs to be standardized. Um, and just to pick one simple example from something that we've done recently in Simti is we've worked with Mesa to try and build a standardized vocabulary for what language codes you need when you're putting out, for example, an Australian English variant of a particular movie or a particular title. Now, that may not seem too difficult, but when you start going into, say, Mongolian or some of the Chinese dialects, um, actually there it's quite difficult to choose which version of Chinese you want to label the audio, the subtitles, and the director's narrative with. If you're an English speaker, you've got no chance. But likewise, the Chinese people trying to decide between Australian English and Canadian English, <laughs> does it matter? Well, it probably does if you're trying to hit those markets with your content. Um, so to try and put some reference out there that people can just choose to try and help the market rather than hinder the market, I think you know, standards for documents and standards for data, I think there's a limited need for them. And I want Simpty to be right up there at the front trying to blaze that trail for when a standard's needed, we want to be able to do it quickly. And is there any part of you that believes we'll eventually see one standardised, one-size-fits-all format for media files across both production and delivery? I, I can answer that very simply with a once upon a time question. Um, now, I've spent a lot of time working with the German public service broadcasters. I love them all. Um, they've got a really great ethic about you know, how Germany fits together. And we once did an experiment with the Institute for Rundfunk Technique a little while ago where we were trying to find the one size fits all metadata standards to describe a, a TV program so that we could put that in an XF. Now, if you live in Germany, and you deeply have a deep understanding of the different uh, German territories, and you understand the, understand the federated nature of the country, you will understand that the people from Bavaria may not have the best love for the people from Alsace. I mean, it's fine. Um, they love each other at one level, but just like siblings, you know, your, your, brother, your own brother is your worst enemy, but your best mate simultaneously, and that's kind of how Germany seems to work. Um, as an outsider, if I'm looking at each of the German public service broadcasters, I can't tell the difference between them until I get in the room with them and start to understand the differences. So when we presented 380 different metadata terms to this group, 
they all came back with about 10 or 11 of the metadata terms they felt were the most important. We thought, great, all of these companies all had the same choice of the 10 or no, no, that's not how it worked. They chose the same number, but they all chose completely different terms because what they were trying to do, because they were all in the room together, was to differentiate themselves from their neighbors to show how much better they were than their neighbors. So will we ever have one standard to rule them all? No, never. We'll only have that when we stop innovating and we stop doing new and interesting stuff. And to a large extent, this is why I think to some level we need standards. We need ways of carrying that differentiation so that two machines who are typically pretty dumb can get the data, but then you use the data to differentiate yourself against your competitor, whether you're, it's an engineering competitor or a media competitor or a human competitor. So that commonality to get the data there, but the differentiation at the end point, I think that's key to having a, a thriving media industry and we'll never have one format, no matter how much I might try and move in that direction. So do you think that IMF will eventually replace MXF for contribution purposes? In, yeah, it's an interesting one because IMF really is like the son of uh, MXF or daughter of MXF or the non-gender pronoun specific version of MXF. And IMF is really targeted at versioning. It's how do you represent an entity like a, a title of a movie or a title of an episodic or a, uh, an advert so that you minimize the storage and maximize the retargetability of that advert or that title. And so there's lots of metadata inside there. And I think in applications where instead of having, um, in fact, let me give you a food analogy. If I sell you a jar of jam, you want to know that when you pop the lid of that jar of jam, no one's got inside and tampered with the ingredients. No one's added hallucinogenic drugs or poison or changed strawberry to raspberry because raspberry is the spawn of the devil and strawberry is the best thing ever. <laughs> um, so you, you want that tamper-proof encapsulated thing. And that's really where MXF started because that's the biggest problem to solve. But actually, there's also a thriving industry of jam manufacturers. So when you're delivering the ingredients to the jam manufacturer, you want to be able to substitute out the you know, poisonous raspberries for the delicious strawberries. You want to be able to add in a little bit of ginger instead of the cardamoms um, because culturally those things work differently in your territory. So I think IMF and MXF, they're so codependent. And as we, as we see media being delivered in an increasingly personalized way, I think the scope of where IMF lives in the value chain is just going to go up and up and up. Today, it's movies and top-end um, episodics and top-end TV programs. But actually, now that there's open-source development kits and open-source tools out there, I think we're going to end up, even with individual producers, deciding, oh, if I do it in IMF, I can upload it directly to the Netflix backlot hey, that bypasses 75 steps of my post-production I'd otherwise have to spend money on. That makes a lot of sense. So I can see it's going to gain traction, but ultimately there's always going to be a larger volume of stuff sent out there with the jam jar. Nobody's tampered with this. Um, and you want to, to make, want to make certain that nobody's tampered with your lovely production that you've just done. So uh, they're going to live together as siblings who will hate each other and love each other in equal measures. And what, from your perspective, has been the biggest challenge that broadcasters have had to overcome during your time in our industry? Oh, physics. When I entered the industry in the 80s, we were fighting physics. You couldn't build a chip fast enough to do standard FTV, let alone HDTV. 
And now you can do it all in software. And I think one of the biggest problems really is not necessarily technological, but it's conceptual, is that we've moved really rapidly from a fighting physics and fighting engineering to harnessing physics and harnessing engineering to hit any business model you can dream up. And we're not, we're not over that hurdle yet. And I think the personnel migration within the industry between hardcore engineers who effectively ruled the roost to versatile business thinkers who can get their brain around the engineering of the problem and understand how to build a solution to a particular engineering problem in a cost-effective way. I think that migration of mindset, we're still in the middle of that. And to some extent, Netflix has been really successful because they managed to jump across that barrier really quickly. Uh, They figured out what they could make. They figured out what they could buy. They figured out what they could just take off the shelf and start using. And they put all that together in a big package and became very successful. Now, whether it was judgment or luck, who knows? But there's other organizations that are busy trying to reinvent themselves. Uh, I don't know the answers, but I, I watch with interesting fascination about how the BBC is reinventing itself. Um, they've gone from a heavily engineering-based society in the 80s when I joined them to basically a commissioner of content that gets culturally delivered. Um, not sure they generally um, agree with that because they've got a marketing department, but that's how I see them operating. And I think that's a really interesting development because if they continue down that route, route, sorry, I'm in the UK, um, I, th- I think they'll probably survive. And when I look at the equivalent in the US and I see how you know the PBSs and other public service broadcasters around the world are trying to reinvent themselves, I think we're going to see an increasingly cultural spin on those different business models because primarily they have to represent the culture in which that they're, they're broadcasting. So the commonality of engineering, I think, will start to dissipate and you're going to start to see a lot of broadcasters really becoming very local, in inverted commas, to the countries in which uh, they currently broadcast and change their methodologies to the way that people live in those countries Um, just because you can. And that's because that's what the people want to watch. So I think we're in a really interesting disruptive time, not necessarily from an engineering point of view, although that is true, but also from the culture of mass uh, broadcast and mass cinema. I think it's going to be really interesting um, over the next decade. And again, I hate to bring it up, but how has COVID-19 impacted the work you do either with Simpty or Mr. MXF? Oh, that's, yeah, it's, it's been massive. I mean, as probably anyone listening to this knows, productions have more or less stopped in their tracks. Uh, mining archives uh, has become the thing. Uh, so from my perspective, uh, if you're going to mine an archive, you need an intermediate like IMF to try and make it work. Uh, so I've been lucky that I've had a, a big choice of business to, to pick up on and people trying to implement IMF in, in a real panic to try and uh, get stuff out there. Simpty is an interesting one. Uh, we've had to move all of our meetings uh, virtually and Simpty's really relied on face-to-face meetings and piggybacking off IBC and NAB. So with those vanishing overnight, we've had to reinvent ourselves. Uh, anybody who's watched the website recently will see that we've just put out some new logos. We've put out some new branding. We're reimagining the way that the organization will fit together. And I've been trying really hard within Simpty to try and get people to think global and not just American. And I'm hoping that will start to, to ripple out. So it's, It's been really dramatic. And one thing that I've noticed that's really interesting is that companies, whether they're vendors or whether they're creators of content, 
who were already cloud aware, cloud ready, and not necessarily cloud native, but going towards a cloud first methodology, they were struck less hard by COVID than those that were saying, oh, I've got till next year or the year after. I'll carry on the way that I'm doing at the moment. I, I can still send my engineers into the office to go and change the tape in the tape backup machine. Um, so I've had um, some private, interesting um, CCTV footage sent to me from around the world of people going in virtually in hazmat suits in the early days of COVID to change tapes or to turn servers back on again to get them working. So it's been very interesting to see even how some very high tech companies were just blindsided by the whole lockdown thing and how even though they thought they were cloudy, uh, they really weren't. Uh, I'm lucky that Mr. MXF is tiny enough that if I wasn't cloud first, I wouldn't exist. So, <laughs> so I've been okay. Um, but it's it's a very, very interesting and, and challenging environment to work in. And uh, yes, there's, there's some facilities being put out by Simpty. Um, so have a look at the Simpty website, those who are struggling in this area. And if anybody wants to you know, drop me an email for some top tips, um, I'm going to put out a series called Bruce's Shorts relatively soon. Um, my, my COVID uh, work has paused it a little bit. It was supposed to be out by now, but I've got 10 or 12 episodes about how to go cloud, how to um, handle things like uh, diversity of workforce to try and help yourself be COVID immune. Um, so those will be coming out relatively soon and they're all three and a half minutes. So if anybody finds that they need an episode like that putting out, let me know a subject and I'll go and find some students to kind of help me put it together. So uh, education for the masses, let's make it happen. And if you could deliver a message to yourself 10 years ago to prepare yourself for the next decade in broadcasting, what would you tell yourself? You know, to anybody who's a bit engineering-y, um, read the biography Hiroji Toyota, who um, generally created the Toyota company. When I started running Amberfin, which is a big transcode company, I, I inadvertently stumbled across him and figured that some of the successful things that I did, actually he'd invented back in the 1890s. And the biggest one is the five whys. When you stumble across anything where somebody is so passionate and enthusiastic about it, be that annoying three-year-old that asks why five times in a row. And if the person can quickly and actively respond to the five whys in series, then you know they've thought it through and they're probably right. But if they stumble at why number three or why number four, then they've missed something. So if I'd asked myself why five times back when I was trying to do MXF back in those early days, I would have figured out much, much earlier than I actually did that I was trying to solve a business problem with technology and not a business problem by using technology. So it's it was an application of technology I should have been doing, but I, I got lucky. I stumbled across something that was pretty good regardless. Um, but luck is not necessarily a very good strategy <laughs> for, for building a successful business. So, yeah, my, my advice would be ask why five times before committing your lifetime to a particular avenue. And in one word, what can we expect for the future of broadcasting technology from your perspective? Disruption. And I'm just going to explain that a little bit. So Jeff Rossiker at the Devoncroft seminar in, at NAB 2019 uh, sat there and said, we're in a state in a period of continuous disruption. There will be no more eruption. And I found that just hilarious, mostly because there's no such word as eruption. But also, surely continuous disruption is indistinguishable from chaos. And I spent the next three minutes trying to figure out what that meant, but he's absolutely, absolutely right. Anything you can think of, you can build in software. 
Therefore, somebody who you've not been paying attention to is going to build something that you don't expect every year from now until the day I retire. So just to finish on, Bruce, is there any exciting news or projects that you've got in the pipeline? Uh, yes, there is actually. Um, so it was doing, I, I set up a project a little while ago called the IMF Registration API. Um, as a result of uh, that work, quite a few people implemented it. So we now have an API where MANS and IMF devices can now exchange uh, information about where stuff is. So if you're a transcoder or a processor and you need to do an IMF project, uh, but you don't know where the stuff is, which um, which blobs or which S3 buckets it's on, this registration API uh, allows you to do it. Um, recently, the Open Services Alliance for Media picked it up and said, hey, we should put this into SMPTE. So in a kind of self-fulfilling way, I put it into SMPTE myself. And because of conflict of interest, I couldn't be the SVP for this project. So somebody else was being SVP. So we're now standardizing this registration API in the hope that we'll see more IMF clients doing funky things with IMF that are beyond anything that I could ever have imagined. Um, uh, Because my imagination isn't quite as scary as some of the young folks in the industry now who literally terrify me. Um, So hoping that we're going to put this through SMPTE's new process called Public CD, where it will be available on the SMPTE website for free so that you can just download all the schemas and the documentation and the reference stuff um, before Christmas. And hopefully we'll see some interesting uses of this API starting to appear so that we get a little bit more IMF open source out there that's more application-based rather than theoretical core-based. Um, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what people do with that. And that's hopefully going to spawn some interesting application projects for 2021. And how can people get in touch with you and find out more about anything that you're up to? Uh, the Mr. MXF website is one of the easiest places. Go to mrmxf.com. Um, but if you're interested in any of the SMPTE stuff or you want to bring a project into SMPTE, then my email is svp, standard by president, svp at SMPTE.org. And you can get in touch with me there for all SMPTE stuff. Or just search for me on the web. I'm the Bruce Devlin that's not the golf course designer, nor the Scottish comedian, nor the wine grower. And his wine is truly fantastic. Three clicks wine, recommended. And do you ever have a kind of Bruce Devlin meetup with these guys? We have a small Bruce Devlin Facebook group. Um, there's only one criteria for joining, um, and most people don't qualify. You know, I'm a deeply, deeply sad person, really, when it comes down to it. <laughs> So that's absolutely everything, Bruce. So thanks so much for coming uh, onto the podcast today and speaking with us. We've covered quite a range of topics here um, and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Absolutely my pleasure. So I do hope you um, get lots and lots of listeners, lots of viewers, and it's wonderfully successful for you. Thank you, Bruce. We really appreciate it.